0: This morning, if you would turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation, um, chapter 3. And I want to bring a word to you from uh, primarily centered in Revelation 3, verse 20. But I want to read the entirety of the letter of Christ to the church of Laodicea. In the beginning of the book of Of Revelation, you have seven letters that are written, literally the letters of our Lord to the seven churches in Asia, and each of them have a powerful dynamic in a message that's relevant for the age, for the first century. These letters are nearly 2,000 years old, and when you read them, if we were to take the time and, and read them one by one, you would see that each of them have a dynamic message for our church today. Very valuable, very urgent, and important for us. So when I looked at these letters, and, um, and my heart went straight to the letter to the church of Laodicea. And um, I, I chose this one not because it defines our church, if you remember a little bit about the letter, and we'll read it in just a second, but not because it defines our church, because of, but because of the astonishing predicament of the Laodicean church in their darkest and most hopeless state, we find the sweetest admonition of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'm amazed at that. Um, Last time I preached with uh, Matthew gave me an opportunity to preach. He told me something to think about. He said um, he has heard my story, somewhat of my story. We all have stories, longer ones as we get older. But uh he, he said, you know, if the church knew more about your story, it would, it, would be, it would be powerful to them. God would be powerful, not me, but God would be powerful. And I said, well, I'll think about it. I felt quite reserved and uh, thought to myself, no, I think it goes really well just to go from God's word and, and deliver it. But I told him I would think about it. And then he um, asked if I would preach these next two, this Friday and next, and I, so I prayed about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, okay, if this is what God wants, he'll lay it on my heart. So there's going to be some connection between this Friday and next, and um, I want to preach on restoration, but that's next Friday. But I thought to myself, before we can wrap our hearts and minds around restoration, we need to know and focus about God's love. And I don't mean to sound condescending because I'm in, I stand in the midst of believers, a church full of believers who know the love of God. Maybe some of you are searching and seeking and desirous to know about God's love, but the predominantly you know of God's love. But we need to be reminded of it over and over. So... I want to begin by talking about his love, by looking at this letter to the church of, of uh, the Laodicean church. So let me read this to you out of chapter three. It starts in verse number 14. And to the angel in the church or of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich and and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And there's three things that I want to... focus on when we look at this letter one of them is that Christ says I know your works and then he says I counsel you and then finally of his love I love you and I want to look at these three things and I the first thing that comes to mind is is that the verses set it down for us just in case we have reservations um, and and certainly uh, like I said in the opening I didn't choose this letter because I think in any way it defines our church. I think it's quite the opposite. I think we have a very vibrant church here. I think we have a people who are blessed with the weakness. And the weakness I feel like we are blessed with is the weakness of hungering and thirsting after God. And that's important. When you hunger and thirst after God, you want to come together and you want to gather around and you want to study the Word of God and you desire to hear from God and you desire to act on the Word that you hear from God. And that's an important thing. Jesus said in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is a blessing to have this kind of hunger and this kind of thirst. It's a blessing to be, in other words, it's saying blessed are those who are desperate for the Word of God. Because there is the opposite. There is the counterpart to that. And those who have no hunger and they have no thirst. So when we read this, it begins the saying that the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. I think the preface is important here because you know something? Something. It's in full sovereignty that Jesus says, I know your works. It's in full knowledge that Jesus says, I know your works. I have complete knowledge of this. You know, when it comes, he's making a judgment of the church of Laodicea. I think when it comes to making judgments, we are not good judges of one another ourselves. matter of fact, it's, we're, we're actually forbidden to judge one another because we can't, we can't know. We cannot know fully our brother or our sister's heart. We can't know fully the struggles that a brother is going through or a sister is going through in the faith. We can't know that. so We're admonished to pray and lift up. We're admonished to pray for for those who are suffering, brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know, you don't have to look around and go, well, okay, I believe this. I'm going to start praying for my brothers and sisters and those that are suffering and those that are struggling and those who have difficulties in their life. You don't have to look at each other. If you're a believer, then you you battle every day. If you are a child of God, then you battle every single day. You struggle against the lusts of the flesh. You struggle against the, the vices of the enemy who would seek to take away your joy and your happiness in Christ. So, we don't judge one another. And we dare not try to judge one another. But when we read these words and we think to ourselves, you know what? Here's a judgment being made of the church of Laodicea. And this man, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is the judge. He knows. When he says, I know your works, he knows it definitively. And he says to them, you're neither hot or cold. I know your works. They had works. They had probably a list of things. Maybe they they, um, patted themselves on the back on a daily basis or when they came together in meetings, but they had works. Jesus says, I know them. Churches have works. Churches are engaged in something. Jesus says, I know your works, and you are neither hot or cold. He says, I would that you were one or the other. I would that you were cold or I would that you were hot, but because you're lukewarm, that's the bad thing to be. What does he mean by this? These people were neither hot or cold. They were undefined in their faith. This entire church in the town of Laodicea were undefined in their faith, according to Jesus. Maybe not according to themselves. Jesus said, you you think you're a rich church. You say you're rich. You, you brag about your wealth and your riches and you brag about the fact that you need nothing. But Jesus said in reality, it's, it's the opposite of this. Some history and archaeology and things like this tell a little bit of the story of this town in Laodicea. And so some, some accounts seem to be different than other accounts, but this is a town that was plagued by earthquakes, frequent earthquakes, the kind that eventually ended up saying, hey, let's don't rebuild this city again. I'm not sure when that happened, but it had suffered earthquakes, and it, and it had to go through rebuilding. And one of the things, maybe even the, one of the bragging points of the town of Laodicea, that Rome wanted to lend them a hand in rebuilding, and they said, no, we got this. We got this. We can handle it. And they, so they rebuilt themselves. One of the thoughts was that this town had two water sources, okay? One was uh, a hot springs, and one was a cool spring. And both of them had their place, hot w- baths and cold water to drink. But in earthquakes and the damages and stuff, they had to bring water in. Sometimes the aquifers got longer and longer, and and the water would become tepid and, and distasteful. So when it was a lukewarm taste, the, the Laodicean people didn't like it. And they would spit it out and, and they would offer a different choice. Whether it's, this was exactly the way it occurred or not, it seems like maybe a fitting description for the Lord to use this in a place that was used to this kind of a water supply. But either way, the metaphor is still clear. I wish that you were hot. It's talking about their spiritual condition. A hot condition or a spiritual condition that's hot would be a church that's vibrant in, in the Word of God. Living to serve the Lord. Not rich in, in incomes or in economy, but rich in the Spirit of God. Rich in, in, um, in believers that gather together and, and, and disciple other believers and reach out in mission efforts. This was the kind of richness... The, the hot that he was talking about. And then he says, oh, I, would you, I wish you were either this, like this, hot, spiritually strong, dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ, dependent on God, or that you were cold. Now, why would he want this? Cold would be the very opposite of that. It would be cold, spiritual deadness. You know, just there's no, no, no life at all. From an evangelistic standpoint, it's easier to come in and either look at a church and commend them for their good works or look at it and say, you don't have any good works because you've got this and this and this and this is going wrong and you're engaged in the wrong things and you're not doing what God wants you to do. And then you can, you can actually admonish them and, 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 and give them a rebuke and a reproof and set them straight and get them on their way. You, the, you have that, at least that option. The sad state is this lukewarm church in Laodicea. They were lukewarm. That means they were neither on fire for God or neither were they cold. They were lukewarm. They had the, the imagination that they were a rich church, rich in, in, in every possible way. The, the Bible doesn't give us any specifics on where they accounted themselves rich. It could have been both. It was obviously a town that was prideful, it was rich in economy, rich in, in, uh, in, in, in all those aspects, trade, commerce. Um, but maybe as the church, they felt the same thing. Maybe it came into the church and they felt a richness. We're, 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 the, we're the God's church here. And uh, we've got it all together. And we're doing it all right. And, but somehow or another, they had works and they had this confidence in themselves that they had everything. And Jesus says, you don't. You are exactly opposite if you are the poorest church that I know. No letter comes across this way of these seven letters that are written in the book book of Revelation. This is the one that comes across the harshest. You are lukewarm. I read a couple of weeks ago, Harvard University has um, hired a chaplain. I think he's been there now for a few years. It's not brand new. But there's a chaplain in Harvard University whose initial beginnings was that kind of a school that would educate the preachers of the land in early America. And they have a chaplain. They have several chaplains, but they have a chaplain there, and this is their claim. It's the church with no God. They have no God. That's kind of like a cold church. At least... Greg Epstein and those who follow him know what they're saying. They, they just don't believe in a God. God is not part of their church. They gather together and they're all about humanitarian efforts. They're all about this, this, and this, but nothing to do with God. He is not mentioned in the church except to uh, put him down and excuse themselves from anything that God would have to say. And so we have our, you know, that's kind of a strange context that, uh, in the direction in which our society goes in, this hot, this cold, those two areas there. And then you have this, this most dangerous place of being lukewarm when they actually maybe claim the word of God in their life. They actually say that they, this church would say, yes, we're believers. Yes, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God. They would say yes to all these things. They would look to you and I as the, the a strong church, a powerful church. But Jesus, who, who knows? He can look through to them and see where they really are. You say, I'm rich. You say, I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing, and this is what Jesus' estimation was, is that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, they had nothing that which they needed. It's really strange. Isn't it strange that people have such a dynamically different view of themselves? They saw themselves as rich, and Jesus said, said exactly the opposite. We see you as poor. What is that? What was the missing element? What was, what was wrong with this church who saw themselves so rich and everything so perfect and so well? And for Jesus to stand up and say, You've got it wrong, people, you've got it wrong. What was going on? This is, comes from the one who says, I know your works. I know why you do them. I know how unconnected or disconnected your heart really is from the work. You go through the motions of religion. I think there's a measure of, of uh, urgency in our own lives. You see, the old divines, as they were called, or the reformers, used to say that the church or a believer, not just a church, but the church of God, yes, individual believers, yes, had two conditions, okay? One condition is that they were abounding in the grace of God. That means growing, constantly growing, reading their Bibles having, and, and, and seeking the direction of God and praying to God and desiring the Holy Spirit to lead them and instruct them desiring to be discipled, abounding in his grace, or apostasizing. I don't know if that's the best way to say it. They were in a state of apostasy. But he said there's no middle ground. And that's, that's what our Lord's message is to the church of Laodicea. There is no middle ground. People find themselves there often. I found myself there painfully so. And it's, it's, un, it's not good. It's just not good. But I don't know how it happens. It's, it's the tool of the enemy, y'all. It's not, it's not a surprise. It's the tool of the enemy to undermine the church of God by giving people a false sense of security. You know, years ago when I first became a believer, I was in the ranks of the, the, what was called the Independent Fundamental Baptist Churches. Um, some good churches and some good people but also some wrong ideas and, and some things. And, you know, it got to be where you really needed to go to a church or you wouldn't even know really what the church was about or what it stood for. But I'd go to these churches and, and you would get this, this um, subliminal message, maybe not so subliminal, but you'd get this message that if you went to church Sunday morning and you went to church Sunday night and you went to church on Wednesday, because we had all these services, and you went to visitation on Tuesday night, and you helped out in vacation Bible school, if you did all of these things, you're good to go. You're just good to go. Early on, I remember as a teenager going to church, um, if you didn't listen to rock and roll music and your hair wasn't long, talking about boys, if you didn't listen to rock and roll music and your hair wasn't long, you're good. I mean, you're you're like in heaven already. And what the dangerous thing was, when I became a believer, and I really believed God did a work in me, but it you know, it's never complete in the first day, is it? You know, it's, we're growing all the time. But I thought, this, this came to my mind. I thought, well, I, you know, I'm glad to know God now, and I'm glad to know what this is all about, and it's a sense of reality and purpose to me to, to hear God's word. But when it came to um, kind of like right and wrong, I thought, I'm, I kind of got this together because I didn't like loud music. Even as a teenager, I just didn't like it. So I was like, good to go. I didn't like long hair because my hair gets curly when it gets long, and I didn't like it. So I'd rather have my hair short so I was like wow I got half of this battle done already actually I probably thought I had more than half of the battle done I had so much to learn in the 30 years ahead in my life about what it means but there is a there is a work of the enemy to give people to give the church of God a false sense of security where they think they have works or they have these works you know you, 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 you assemble these things in your own heart or mind, maybe you even list them on a piece of paper you know, and you, you make this list of your accomplishments i don 't do this and i don 't do this, and i don 't go with people who do this, and i don 't hang out with those who do this and, and I got my marriage is strong, and i 've done this, and i 've done this and I remember I used to look around and see all my friends at my first class reunion, which was my first and last one to go to by the way ten year class reunions was so funny. you know all these guys were getting bald and chunky and looking different and they all came to a class reunion 10 years down the road or maybe it was 15 and they all stand around like they were in high school yesterday it's really the weirdest thing i ever saw but anyway it's just strange how you know the just the the effect of all this kind of thing and the thoughts of of all of this and um so you 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 wonder what you know how does god work you know how does he how is he working in us do or do we are we getting a false sense of security you know do we do we trust God as He wants us to trust him? do we desire him you know sometimes we're we're bent this way um, and maybe it 's the church that does it to us. we think we have to we have certain things we should do you know keep the keep the commandments, be obedient to God, and so we think we've got to be obedient. we start planning out our obedience in such a way as you know what? I, I just realized something in, in not long ago. You know, and just maybe coming to fullness in when I was preparing this message. You know, Jesus, in his as he teaches us to pray, we we say, "Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." You know, and we ask God to lead us. It's not that we say we, we personally plan out these righteous things to do, but we ask God actually to lead us. You know, we have a a central focus, and our central focus, which I'll say more about later, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we make that our central focus, and He will lead us. And the result of that will be good works, and we won't be accumulating them because we'll have forgotten yesterday's good works because we're busy about what God has called us to do today. He says, I know your works. It's not what you think. Your heart is so far from me. They're missing some element. True faith seems to have been reduced to a compact set of responsibilities. If we meet these responsibilities, all is well with us. I like it. I don't know about you, but I like it. I like to have it spelled out. My father spelled it out for me when I was growing up. You do this, 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 or you're dead. Maybe literally, I don't know. I didn't, try, I didn't push him on that issue. But I knew I could be in good favor with my father if I did this, this, this. And I did everything he asked me to do. So I like the context of, of legalism in religion. But it's, it's the worst thing that could ever happen. It's the worst thing that could ever happen. You know, I think every, every religion of the world has this element. Whether it's Jewish, Muslim, Christianity, all the other religions of the world. Most of them have a legalistic system, if not all of them, except for Christianity. I don't know all of the religions of the world. I haven't studied them all, but I've studied several of them. They have a legalistic system, things to do and things not to do. If you, got, if you do those things, all is well with you. Christianity is not that way. It is not that way. There are definitely things that you're supposed to do, but the, but the root of it is in the love of Jesus Christ. If you have that missing, then you're in trouble. We're all in trouble. But as long as we're caught into that, we might grow up and think we're rich. We might become prideful. Hardest confession I can make in my whole life. When my son was six years old, my oldest, he joined a Boy Scout. I was too busy. I couldn't go even to the meetings but be a part of it. But, you know, I was in it when I was a kid, so I thought this is a good thing for my son to be a part of, being in the Boy Scouts. So he was in the Boy Scouts, and then he came home one day, and he said, uh, Dad. Because he, he 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 found out something that he did not know of before, Dad. There's this boy. And his um, he lives with his mom, but his dad doesn't live there. And so what he was sorting out was that these people were divorced. And uh, it, it pretty much horrified him. You know, and he looked and said. You know, he was trying to figure out, is that ever going to happen to his case? And I told him, because you see, I was a Christian. And I was, I had it together. And I told him, my son, that's one thing you'll never have to worry about. For 22 more years. And then I, had, I went through that shipwreck in my life. But I was so busy, you all, accumulating a list of of works it was so fun to brag about you know you don't really do it you you let people know you know how you do it we're all good at it because we're humans. so it was a disaster for me but I know what this is talking about I know what it is when when God says I know your works you don't know the whole story you only know part of it and it's bad enough I know I was pastoring a church at that time. Responsible for a flock of believers at that time in my life. That's why I told my son with such confidence, you don't have to worry about that. That's not in my vocabulary. It's the furthest thing. It could not happen. Pride. Self-willed. But never desperate for God. You see, I didn't like rock and roll music. You see, I, 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 I didn't like long hair. I was good to go. From 16 years old when I first learned about the Lord, I was good to go. I, I had it together. Jesus has a way. He, 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 he puts his label on you and says, you're mine. And I don't know if all of our theology agrees, but trust me, you read the word of God long enough, you'll know this as I know it. God says, you're mine. He'll see it through. You are a work begun by God. He is the author of your faith. He will be the finisher of your faith. And thankfully for this church in Laodicea, don't know how it came out. I don't know how it came out in, in the first century upon them receiving this letter and how they respond. It's 2,000 years ago. But we have to respond in our own lives. Where is, where is our strength? Where is, does our riches lie? The Laodicean church chose their way. It just wasn't God's way. But it looked really close. It looked really good. It was such a good counterfeit that they didn't know the difference. They really saw themselves as a church that was on fire. They would have said, we're the church that's hot. Who are you talking about, this lukewarm church or this cold church? Who are you speaking of? Because it couldn't be us. But it was them. They chose their way. And basically, the Lord wanted to tell them, you have not desired me. You've desired your good works. You've desired your high standing in your community, in your families, in your workplaces. But you have not desired me. Jesus Christ says, you have not desired me. And this is not a new message to the church in the first century. This was a a message to the church before Christ. Christ. Luke references the Old Testament Isaiah and says, "What does this mean? You know, you have you, you put all these works together, you, you do all this stuff, but you're you I, you're you're serving, you're honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me." Wow, is that possible? Is that possible, to to honor God with our lips, but our heart is far from Him? It's scary possible. Scary possible. But today the church is different, or not different. Today the church may be the same. We have to hang on to, we have to pray and seek the face of God, and seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to pray this, people. That was how we were taught for a reason and very specifically. It seems that, that all religions kind of migrate toward this legalism that I was talking about earlier, and they can't hardly help themselves. They just migrate that way. Christianity migrates that way, and then it becomes dangerous, and they become very much like churches in Laodicea. Churches like, uh, people like this, and so do churches. You know, it's like an insurance policy, you know, being a Christian, Uh, Remember the story of the rich ruler. He was a young ruler and he was very wealthy. And he said to the Lord, you are a good man. What should I do to have eternal life? And, you know, Jesus spoke to him and and it boiled down to, well, this one thing you do lack, however, just one thing. The Laodicean church will find out lack just one thing. And this rich ruler lacked one thing. He said, well, Jesus says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. Let's do this together. And then what happened was the rich young ruler grew very sad and because he couldn't do this. He, he could not respond to, to, to the call of the Lord. We want an insurance policy that covers us in case of a, of a disaster. Sometimes we call it Christianity. It just, it's, it's something you buy and and, you, you know, I remember when I, for the first insurance policy I ever bought, you know, the, the salesman was really good. You know how they are. They're so good at this. And he says, well, what you do is you pay it. It doesn't cost you much, but you pay it. You put it in your file cabinet at home, and you never have to worry about it unless there's a disaster, and then you draw on this. You know? Okay, that's, I like it. That's a pretty good thing. I don't have to think about it, but it's there in case of an emergency. Christianity is not that way. Christianity is 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 an insurance policy of life given to us and afforded to us by Jesus Christ. It is ongoing, constant, working thing in us. It's a constant thing in us. Our salvation, our, our, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, His love for us is an ongoing, interactive, dynamic work that's never supposed to take a pause. Never supposed to take a pause. Jesus told him, I know what your works are. So, he says, I counsel you, number two. I counsel you. You know, it's really nice when you get good counsel, you know? Sometimes your friends, like, have good counsel for you. You, Maybe you even ask for it. You say, you know, i got to make a decision, and um, I'm not sure what to do. It could be about anything, you know? So, you talk to your friends, and, after you listen to them, you go, well, I don't, I don't think they get it. You know, I don't really think they understand where I'm at. And so, you know, you, you're not sure. You know, maybe, maybe you're in really a desperate situation. You, you, you go to a place, you pay for some a counseling session with someone, and you actually pay them money. And, you know, they get you comfortable, and you spill your heart out to them. And they give you counsel, and maybe you say, uh, I don't think they get it. You know, or maybe you're the counselor. Someone's come to you and say, well, and you might tell your friend who's seeking counsel. Mm, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't really know what you need. I don't I, I don't know enough of the story here. I don't really know enough to give you the right kind of counsel. Maybe this happens. But I, I assure you on this note and in this in this letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says, I counsel you. Wow. This is some counsel to listen to because he knows everything. He knows more than you know about yourself. He knows your getting up and your goings. He knows the words before they come out of your mouth, he knows the thoughts before they come into your mind. This is the kind of counselor, folks, I want to talk to. I, this is the kind of counselor I want to hear from. And Jesus says to this church, I counsel you. How does he counsel them? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. That's a pretty expensive gold, I'm thinking, right? It's refined by fire. All the impurities are out of it. It's just a pure gold. You talk about being rich. This is the gold that will make you rich. See, the, the church in Laodicea thought they were rich. And Jesus says, no, I counsel you to buy gold from me refined by fire. The metaphor is Jesus has truths. He has his word. And he says, you need my word and you've ignored it. I've spoken to you on these things. He would tell the church in Laodicea. I've spoken to you about this. I have caused you to question your purpose in life. You ignored it. I have spoken softly to your heart about issues you need to manage or take care of and seek my counsel on. and You've ignored it. I've urged you in a specific direction. I've sent messengers in your direction and you've ignored it. I have set before you the basic tenets of right and wrong. And the list could go just on and on and on about the counsel that God has given. And it's ignored. He tells the church and lay to see that this is a council that's, I want you to buy from me, I want you to invest from me in this gold that I have that's refined by fire, these truths that are absolute and real. But we live in a day, you know, the absolute truth of God is something that should be so refreshing to us. It's hard to understand and nobody understands at all the fullness of God's word. It's complicated. Sometimes in our home group, we get into those complicated sections of the Bible and we just go, Wow. I know it's saying something powerful here. I just can't get it yet, you know. And sometimes we go out on a limb a bit and say, well, I think it means this. But we're trying to use the rest of our spiritual knowledge and the rest of God's word to kind of be careful with the, how we handle God's word and truth. And then the rest of it, we just think, you know what? When we get to heaven, if we're a little bit off on here, God will help us out. He'll straighten our minds and He'll straighten our hearts out about it. Because we just want to honor God and we want to know what He says to us. so not our desire is to... What is he saying to me? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to think? Look, we we hunger for God's word, for the absolutes of the scripture. But you know what? We live in an age and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Oh my goodness, sometimes it's good not to listen to the news. We live this time where there seems to be an absolute was something that we used to recognize as an unchangeable point of reference. It wouldn't change. It was just, it was concrete. In mathematics, we have, we call them axioms in mathematics. i better be careful here. I don't want to use, I can use a lot of math metaphors and I don't want to lose anybody in them, but I just love math because math was the subject when I was in school that I could actually walk away from a test and have a sense I was going to do okay. They were absolutes, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4 and it doesn't change, you know. When you write an English paper, it's a different story. It's always subjective. I learned a lesson when I was in college, seminary. I I had an English teacher and the first day, you know, that's what I didn't like about English because you know what's going to happen the first day in there. She's going to ask you to write a paper about your summer's experience. I thought I left that behind in middle school. In my first English composition, one in seminary, the first thing she says is, I want a, I want a one-page paper about some experience in your life. Share it and write it down. Oh, wow. Okay. How long is this semester? That's what I was thinking. How long is this going to last, you know? So anyway, I wrote my paper. I couldn't think of something. I, I remember a summer... A couple of summers and a year, almost two years, I lived with my grandfather on a farm in Kansas, and so we, um, we uh, my brother and I we got to raise calves. My grandfather, for the work we did, gave us a calf, and we raised the calf. And I, and I remember having to get up early in the morning and feed it, and I had to feed it several times a day and take care of it and all this kind of stuff that went in with taking care of uh, livestock. And So I wrote about that experience. I did not know that my teacher... Grew up on a farm in northern Kansas. I spoke her language. I got an A on the paper, an A plus. The, I, I should have kept it. I, I don't have it. I should have kept it because it would be, it would be, it was rare. It, not only was it rare; it's probably the only time it ever happened. She wrote a note on there. There's no. She told me that she says, "I, I know your story. I grew up in Kansas on a farm." But she says, "There's no way for you to fail my class." <laughs> what a relief that was. You know, things, you know, I, I, I said, wow, this could almost be like a math class. And now I've got a little concrete thing going on here as an absolute. But we live in an age now where there are no absolutes, no axioms, because they seem to change. You know, the lines that are drawn keep being, are, are continually being moved to where, what is right anymore? All of a sudden, you and I are wrong if we stand up for what we believe because it's not politically correct. I hope there's a lot of us in this room that says, I don't care. It is what God says is true. So when we receive counsel from God, we have to understand He speaks to us absolutely. He doesn't speak to us with a hidden agenda. I know your works. You're neither hot or cold. But you're really lukewarm. There's no hidden agenda. He he had compassion for this church that seemed to be all but dried up. But he was still in the midst of it. He still wrote them a letter and had it delivered. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich in white garments so that you need to clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Everything they thought they had together they didn't have at all. Wow. Wow. Can that be true? Can that be true in our own life as a Christian? That we think we have it together and we don't have it together at all? Something we have to look into. It boils down to some very basic things. There was a great want in the church. Something of tantamount importance to the church. It is a want that brings lasting joy and lasting peace, such that when this is found, there's no more looking, just a holding on. Like the man like in the parable that found a, a treasure in a field and he saw immediately its great worth. Wow, I sold everything he had to buy this field and hold that treasure. It was the truth of God's word. So Jesus would offer this counsel to meet the needs of the church, this truth. I have two passages of scriptures that I come to my mind as I was thinking about this. One was the passage of Scripture that closes out the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's that book where Solomon talks about all the... The wisdom that he had and the knowledge that he had and you know it's called the preacher and, and he preaches and he talks about vanity of vanities all is vanity and he goes on and says how he gave himself to learning everything and it didn't profit him much he gave himself to giving denying himself nothing in the way of pleasure and it was all vanity and on and on it goes and in the end of he says the end of the matter has all been heard this is how he closes the, his, the word out fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God's saying again, I know your works. He boiled it down to this. He said, fear God and keep His commandments. How do you relate that? You've you, you got to think about this verse too because she, you see, the word fear means different things. You might have a great fear for a, for a snake, a poisonous snake. And you, so you have a fear of it. A prisoner may have a fear that the, that his captors are going to pull him in and torture him and put him through great physical stress. He, ha- he may have a fear of that. There's a different kind of fear here. This is the kind of fear that when you love someone so much you you're, you you're fearful of hurting them. You love God so deeply that you don't want to offend Him and you don't want to hurt Him. So when it says this, Fear God and keep His commandments. This is is the love song of God. This is an invitation for God to say, Would you like to know how you can love me as I love you? Fear God and keep His commandments. Have a respect for Him. Similarly, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, it's no good keeping the commandments if there's no love. It's no good for the Laodicean church to amass a great list of of works and accomplishments if there's an absence of love. Remember, they were rich and they said, their profession was, I have need of nothing. Here's a church that, that openly confessed, we're not desperate for God. We're not desperate for Him. The question should come to us. Are, are we desperate? Is the church today or Christians today in a place in their lives where they're desperate for God? You know what I'm saying? Desperate for Him. I can't live tomorrow unless He's with me. I can't live this moment unless He's with me. I get really nervous about standing up here and... uh. So I was sitting there thinking and praying before I came up here, and I thought, "Wow, Lord, I have got this word Matthew gave me, told me when I was going to preach two months ago. Who gets to pre- Who gets to prepare for two months? You know." So I prepared it like in a day, or at least in my mind it was all together. And I've been looking at this thing over and over and just adding to it and taking it away. It's like been migrating back and forth and. All this stuff and I'm just so nervous and I can't, you know, and 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 I and I said, you know, Lord, basically it's this. I don't care how well the word is written down on paper, I'm desperate for you. Not to get through this moment. I'm desperate for you to get through my job. I'm desperate for you to get through every aspect of my life. I'm desperate, God, for you to get through my marriage. You're thinking, whoa, has he got, like, problems or something? No. You see, the first time I was married, I was never really desperate for God. I had it under control. I was good to go. But things changed. And God spoke to me in a different way. So I'm desperate for him so that he teaches me how to love my wife. He teaches me how to love the people, my coworkers, and the students I teach, and to build relationships. I'm desperate for Him every minute of my life. This is what is urgent. This is the counsel that the Lord says. So He says this. He says, I I love and reprove and discipline. I love you. And because I love you, this is the Father saying to the church of Laodicea, you know, most would have abandoned the church by now. But Jesus stands there and says, I love you. And because I love you, I, I am reproving you and I'm going to discipline this church. Wow. If you're a parent, you know what it means to love your child so much that you have to discipline them and you have to correct them. The only problem is is that you and I think we're past that. That's the problem. And we're not. You're not past it. You're in the middle of it, just like your little, your little children are, your little daughter, your little sons, or your teenage daughters and sons. You know, we're not perfect, and, we're, and we need God to continue to love us enough to reprove us, to correct us. Just understand it about yourself, and don't let anyone or yourself put you up on some kind of a pinnacle and think, wow, you got it made, because you don't. You don't. You're only as strong as the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay, I think I'm going too long here. Third point, and so we'll do it quicker. And this is the, I think we've built up enough to this so we won't really do a disservice. But the third point is Jesus, he does love. And then and this verse, and this is why I think it's such an interesting dynamic when you think about who he's writing to and who he's speaking to to this Laodicean church who are the worst kind of believers. They think they don't need anybody. Get out of here. Don't talk like that. We don't need you. I wonder how they found a preacher in Laodicea. Must have found somebody with a new version or something. I don't know. But they they just didn't need anything. But Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, this is such an interesting Expression And I love this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now what does that mean? You know? How is Jesus talking about his love in this little phrase? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus shows this to the Laodicean church. He shows this to our church. He shows this to you and to me. That by knocking, Jesus says, I desire, I desire you. I want to be in your company. By knocking, he shows he desires the church, he desires you. And if the church will acknowledge this knocking at the door, it will show that we have a desire for the Lord. This was what was missing in the church of Laodicea, void. I don't mean, there's no indication that there was even a spark of this in that church. And Jesus says, this is what I really want. You and I think that it, what God wants is, is this, you know, every time the church doors are open, attend. Make sure you're giving your offering and your tithe and this and this. We think we've got to get all these things. And those are so important If you love the Lord, you're going to do those things. You will have works, and you'll have works maybe as rich as the church of Laodicea, but yours is going to be centered in the love of Christ. Jesus says, Jesus never says, keep my commandments, but that he says, if you love me, keep them. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. If you love me, keep them. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything at all. It's it's of no account. It's of no value. See, this is the very element that's been missing, this personal connection with God. No wonder there's so much today said about having a quiet time with God. Church needs this. Believers need this. We need to have time with God. And if we can just start it out as a little time of the day and make it stretch and stretch and stretch until it's all day long. Wow, how rich we would be. So in conclusion, you know there's these fearful verses that ring in my heart and mind and I think about these and I think as a church we must hear this. And And it needs to speak to us. It needs to confirm in our heart that God, thank you for leading me because I am desperate for you. It needs to confirm this, that we're, we're in the right place. We're in the company of God and we have a filling of His Spirit in our life and we, and we love Him and we're desperate for Him and we need Him and we like sharing Him. We want to be discipled. We don't want to turn away from a reproof or a correction. We want to receive it because I need to be in favor with my Lord. Not because I'm earning my salvation, but it's just... I want, see, He's knocked at my door, and I want Him to come in, and and He desires me, and I want to desire Him. So we go after these things. But over and over, you have this warning in Matthew 7, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You see, I'm, I was keeping record, Lord, and I know for sure that I did this, 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 this. I can't tell you people how shamed I am. I remember when I answered a call to the ministry, and I'm sorting out what that means now. When you go through a shipwreck, you have to take appraisals of things, but I remember thinking, felt the call to the ministry, and I thought to myself, wow, Lord, really? Because you know that my father's been helping me, and we've been working on this whole Air Force Academy thing, and uh, the whole flying the jet thing has been like nothing but consuming me. And you want me to let that go? And go to Bible school? You know? I just wasn't sure that that was what i wanted to do but god intervenes we stack up these lists of rights good works and we find out they don't mean anything and i used to tell people well you know called in the ministry. I had to give up flying like I was a martyr. You know, like I, man, you know, God owes me deep now. I have him, you know. Wow, was I ever wrong. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them I never knew you. I knocked at your door, but you didn't let me in. See, Jesus could, doesn't have to knock on the door, I suppose, but this is what he says and this is what he does. He could just like kick the door in and barge into your life. But you see, he, he, he wants you to enjoy him as he enjoys you. He wants you to desire him. Isn't that amazing that almighty God in heaven who sits on the throne of all of creation, and he knocks on your door and says, I desire you. Is there a desire in your heart for me? Do you desire me? It gives rise to the question, what does God want for us? If, we can, if the church of Laodicea can accumulate so much, what does he want? If this isn't enough, what does he want? And we find out it's this simple. He just wants to time with us. He wants our life. He gave his life for us. He wants an eternity with us of sweetest fellowship, of exciting things, too innumerable to mention, in a language that, we, that can't be expressed. He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Wow, I like that. I'm not sure what all that means, but I like it. He chose us before the foundations of the world. He would knock on our door. He wants to come in and share an intimate meal. And that is a metaphor for life. To share an intimate life with you. Not that starts in the morning and lasts for 15 minutes, but one that lasts all of your life and through all of eternity. He prayed in John 17, one of the sweetest passages in all of the Bible for, for me to take joy in is reading the high priestly prayer. But he says in one part of this prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. It sound wonderful. I desire, Father, that those you have given me, those whom I'm going to die for, that they may be with me. That's what I long for. You know, maybe some of you are looking forward to heaven. And looking forward to eternity and looking forward to this battle being over. Jesus is too. He's looking forward to the day he calls you home and the battle's over. Wow, what has he got planned for us? Well, I don't know. It's pretty special. It eluded. You know... The the authors of the New Testament they could just put it in words that the Holy Spirit would just put an impression on their minds and He says and the Bible says you know it hasn't even entered our hearts or our minds and our imaginations what the Father has planned for those that love Him it hasn't even entered our minds we can't even think of it the best you can think of doesn't even touch or scratch the surface of what God has planned John in First John three has to say behold what manner of love the Father hath loved us with it's I can't express it I can't explain it it's so different it's so amazing. Let's remember this. I don't care how bad, the. it can't get worse than the church of Laodicea. and We're not that church, not at all. But we want to be a church that's abounding in the grace of God. We want to be a church that's growing in His grace day by day. Not in pride, but humble before God and desperate for Him and desirous that He would would fill my heart. Fill our hearts with His presence and with His love. And draw us out and teach us how to serve and love the way He does. Remember that His love is pursuant. He's pursuing you. You know, like the the lost sheep, the 90 and 9, and there was one missing, and the shepherd leaves the 90 and 9 just because of the one. He has to go get it and bring it back to the 90 and 9. He's pursuant, He is irresistible. His love is irresistible. He draws you to Himself. He's putting like things maybe even right now into your heart. Drawing you. Saying, I want to spend life with you. I need you to shut out everything that's bothering you and come to me. I'll help you work through stuff. You get bothered by every, the stuff of the day, but he's, God says, I'll help you work through it. God didn't send His Son or His love, rather, never fails. It doesn't fail. He says so in the Bible. It never fails. God didn't send His Son to the cross on chance and probability. He loves you. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until that day. He's not going to give up on you. And that's what He was doing, standing there before the church and laying it see saying, I'm knocking. Will you open the door? It's His definition of love, not ours, thankfully so. I like His definition of love. It's powerful. It searches the heart. It draws us. And it says, you know what? It doesn't matter what your track record is. I look at Jesus and his righteousness, which becomes your track record. You know, the righteousness of your life by which God can accept you is based on his son's righteousness, not our own. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for... Lord, the opportunity to meet together with brothers and sisters in the faith. And I know it's so warm in this building. I see, Father, we're hot and we're fanning ourselves. But Lord, we've heard your word and we're thankful for it. Father, we we pray and, and ask you to work in our heart what miracles that need be. Father, let us, give us ears to hear. And Father, when you're seeking entrance into our lives, day by day and moment by moment, that we're sensitive, Father, to hear, that we would open and receive you. Thank you for your love, Father, and thank you for your mercy and your long-suffering with us. You are such a good and glorious God. We ask you, Father, to lead us into your kingdom. Protect us, Father, from the world and from its clutches. And help us to abound in your grace and in your mercy. We ask in Christ's name, amen.